From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. We thank you so much for carving a little bit of time out of the beginning of your weekend or the end of your week, depending upon how you want to look at it. Is your week half empty or is your week half full? That doesn't really make sense either. Not, not in this case, no. But that's Wednesday, okay. perhaps. We, we, the, so we've, uh, I know you just got started in radio here, Colin, but we have these these devices that are hooked up to your station there yeah. that if you put that like pretty close to in front of your mouth, then all the people that are listening on the radio can hear you too. I thought, like Christ on the mountaintop, they'd just hear my voice <laughs> going down the, you know, cascading the, the down the hillside. Effect. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Colin Donovan on acoustics for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Not just theology anymore. <laughs> if you would like to talk to this brilliant man about something other than acoustics, acoustics or anything, please give us a call. The number is 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. But I will tell you this, it's Friday, and we will have jam-packed phone lines shortly. So if you want to get in on the action, I would give you a, give us a call right now at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And uh, we will even put you straight to the line if you are outside of North America. That's one 205 271-2985. Uh, you can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And um, who's doing social media? Mr. Producer Man. Somebody is. Charles Beery. We're going to say Charles Beery with the assistance of Ace McKay. And maybe Tom Price chiming in also to handle our social media efforts because Jeff Burson, magnificent person, is taking a well-deserved day off. Uh, so we're tag-teaming our social media efforts. So if you are watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, uh, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. And another year has gone by, and it will be another year without a Canadian Stanley Cup winner. Well, it's, it's sort of amazing, actually, but uh, I guess we've just fertilized the whole league now, and so it's sort of immaterial. <laughs> the Edmonton Oilers, since last we spoke, were eliminated. Yes. And uh, now we just have pagan American teams left in the... And who is your... Of course, you don't bet, well, my, naturally. Yeah, but my, if you could my, bet or would bet. What now? Oh, yeah, now... Um, well, I'll tell you what, it would be hard to bet against the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, the two-time defending Stanley yeah. Cup champions. Uh, lost the first two uh, games of their series in New York to the Rangers. Uh, came storming back, back in Tampa, and mm -hmm. won the two games at home. And then last night they beat uh, the Rangers in New York, so they're up 3-2. to two. And uh, But really, for all rights and purposes, it looks like uh, the Colorado Avalanche looked to be, I think, the... Uh, 
the cream of the crop this year. Just in watching them throughout the playoffs, yeah. they really appear to be a step ahead of everybody else. So we'll see. That seems to be the scuttlebutt. Everybody's saying that in sports and how they're just yeah. pretty amazing to watch, actually. Yeah. As Howard Cosell would say, that's why they play the games. You just don't know. So uh, we'll let that play out. And I'm sure that all of our Open Line Friday listeners have tuned in to hear our discussion of, of hockey. Of hockey. Yeah, I'm sure they have. Yeah. You are Canadian, and for those who do not know, that's why this is a poignant topic, because Colin is Canadian, and they don't give you a birth certificate, a passport, or a driver's license unless you pledge <laughs> loyalty to some Canadian hockey team. So the Saskatoon <laughs> Blades, I, I guess. I don't think been. they probably count in that respect, but uh, they may have. Uh, did you, did you fancy the Saskatoon Blades as a young lad growing up in Saskatchewan? You know, I didn't really pay attention to it because we were too busy outside doing stuff. Oh, well, there kid, you go. You know. okay. Well, there you have it. Um, so, uh, as I told Father Brian Milady yesterday, uh, as an adult convert, one of the things that I have appreciated from day one most about the church is the liturgical calendar and really the, mm -hmm. the life, almost, that the liturgical calendar takes on. And... Um, you know, and even in in more recent years, as I've become more familiar with um, the the previous calendar that was used by the traditional Latin Mass, uh, you know, back before the the Novus Ordo was mm -hmm. was in vogue, um, both have got just what I think are are uh, amazing things to show us about the life of Christ and about the life of the Church, and. This week is no different. We just celebrated the Great Feast of Pentecost as we come to the end of the Easter season, and it launches us right into the Great Feast of the Supreme Mystery, the Holy Trinity. You know, it, and we actually have some wonderful feasts coming up that follow upon the, you know, the completion of the Paschal Mystery, which we can really say Passion, Death, Resurrection, Ascension, Sending of the Holy Spirit— sort of is the cap on that mystery and we had that as you noted and now we're we're we have some of the big feast days the big dogmas ahead of it if you if you will and that is certainly the holy trinity uh we have corpus christi will be coming up the mystery of the eucharist which for the church is the central you know the uh central element of the church's life the you know source and and uh, of the church's life and then we also have the Sacred Heart of our Lord, which is about his incarnated love, that divine love incarnated in, in the man, Jesus Christ, and by through which he showed forth and lived that, you know, mystery we just celebrated, uh, Paschal Mystery. And then we have uh, uh, what is yet a, a, simply a memorial now, the, the Immaculate Heart and the unity of the, of, of the two hearts seen together in, in the working out of that salvation on our behalf. So... Um, I, I almost like, really during Easter, you have that long period, not of liturgical silence, obviously, you're celebrating the saints, you're celebrating the Easter mystery in a general way, but now we have like the, 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 the heavy hitters coming up in terms of individual points and individual individuals, uh, beginning with the, the Holy Trinity from which it all began and from which it all comes and to which it all returns, as the Church also teaches. All right, let's hear the Colin Donovan explanation of the Trinity. Uh, Everybody's one got, God every and three divine persons. Every theologian's persons. got one. <laughs> <laughs> one God and three divine persons, you know. So um, th there's something that people forget. 
we look at the world, we look at history, we look at Christ, we look at our role in, in all of that, and we think, what is the central feature of that? What is the distinguishing theme through all of that? I, I think it is the Mysterium Pietatis, the mystery of piety. And that is, within the Trinity, you have a mystery of piety in that the Son, the Word follows from the Father, the source of the Trinity, and returns to the Father in love, back to the source of the Trinity. And Christ unfailingly lived incarnationally on earth, that mystery of piety for the Divine Father. And we are called to do the same, to be inserted into Christ's mystery of living his piety, which began in the Trinity itself, his relationship with the Father in the Trinity, and the absolute fidelity that he has to that. The opposite, of course, is the mystery of iniquity. We don't want to be inserted into that because there's the mystery of impiety of the devil and his fallen angels and all of those who, who have lined them, aligned themselves with him throughout history. So, in a way, in, the, in, the, in Trinity Sunday, we can see the, the mystery of the Trinity, yes, but that the Father is the source of the Trinity, and we are called to be inserted into that Trinitarian communion through the life that we live in union with Christ, in union with Our Lady, in union with the Church. Uh, so it really is a beautiful mystery, and we should uh, perhaps contemplate that element of it, of which there are many things that can be said. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And if you are outside of the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I am giving you... As I do every Friday, unfettered access to a professional theologian. Just give us a call. It's a free telephone call. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Wings is EWTN's weekly e-newsletter. You can find out all about EWTN radio and television shows, items from EWTN's religious catalog, and a whole lot more. You can sign up for Wings at EWTN.com and simply click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 288 Three nine eight six. Gary would like to know 
he says, when I enter the confessional, do I need to say the words, bless me, Father, for I have sinned? I already hear the priest making the sign of the cross when I enter. Is that a blessing, or do I still need to say the words? No, it's, it's, it's part of our response to and participation in confession. Uh, to, it's an acknowledgment of why we're there. Bless me, Father. We're not going to our sister, to our mother, or to a sister, for that matter. Uh, we're going to the priest, representing the church, representing Christ, and we're bringing our sins. So that's a, that's a, uh, that's a, it's formulaic, yes, but like most things that we do in the church, most prayers, such as the act of contrition that will come at some point, what, using whatever formula the individual chooses, it's expressing what is in our interior and in our heart, and it should, uh, it should do so. Uh, Greg writes in, why do we allow infertile and menopausal couples to have conjugal relations, but not the homosexual couple? Well, because nature has ordered uh, sexuality towards marriage and towards children, uh, and that is the, the joys and pleasures associated with it are attached to, to sexuality in the same way that the joys and the pleasures of eating and fellowship and so on are not primarily for the fellowship and for the pleasure, it's for the nutrition and the sustenance. And so that's the role which sexuality plays in human nature as eating does its own proper role. And so the, the end or finality of, of eating is nutrition and health. The end and finality of sexuality is children as the primary end and the secondary end is the unitive relationship uh, because in the unitive relationship is the fostering and the nurturing of children as well as the mutual support uh, of the of the spouses, uh, and so those elements are present in uh, in marriage, and in a way because uh, the sense pleasures, whether it's eating or or drinking or sexuality, uh, are very are very strong pleasures and are subject to being disordered. It also protects the virtue of the individual so that they are within a particular context and in an orderly way that they are using that faculty in a virtuous fashion. And even married couples are called to a virtuous use, use of their sexuality. Outside of that, it's quite clear simply looking around us in our society that all forms of sexual practice outside marriage are disordered, and they produce disorders. They produce uh, unwanted pregnancies, which lead, then lead to... Uh, the sense that, well, I have to have an abortion or my life will be ruined. Uh, they lead to uh, pregnancy outside of marriage, adulterous relationships and the fruit of that. Uh, they lead to sexually transmitted diseases because if you'll have, if you abuse your sexuality with one person, why not with a second, a third, or a fourth? Or to, as it is today, if you abuse, uh, would abuse yourself if you're a man with a woman, well, why not with another man? Or why not with two women? Or... So you open the the floodgates, not just of lack of virtue and vice, therefore, but also to many other things which are a burden on the individual's life and health as well as on society, uh, having to deal with the fruits of that behavior. So I, it's hard for me to understand how in our world, with all of its evident sexual vices, that anyone can doubt that monogamous marriage entered chastely and lived chastely is not the best pathway to happiness 
and the be best pathway, pathway to the experience of the joys which God attached to the sexual faculty. Outside of it, the joys are there because that flows <clears throat> from the nature. Uh, or you might say the pleasures are there. But the joy of a stable and loving relationship which has the fruit which God intended for it will never be there outside of these uh, uh, outside of marriage. Uh, so uh, it's not as if God is a Scrooge and is trying to prevent other relationships of friendship and whatever, but he is saying that this is not virtue to, to seek friendship in a sexual fashion outside of marriage, uh, seeking only the pleasure. In the end, you don't respect the person you're with, and you're only <clears throat> looking for your own self-pleasure and fulfillment. You know, Pam Stenzel, who is a famous chastity yes. speaker, mm -hmm. she frequently will ask the question, which is really a good one to ponder, just think and just imagine for a moment all of the social ills that would immediately vanish yes. if people in our society only had sexual relations with a person of the opposite sex that they were married to. A good number of them. I mean, there are other areas that would not necessarily vanish, injustices in, in financial and other matters, but in one monstrous area. And if the family is the cell of society, you can see how central to the happiness of a society itself is having solid families that are really living an authentic family life. Without that, a society devolves into chaos. And basically, we have sexual chaos in our society today for that very reason. Uh, Matt would like to know, he says, is there a direct correlation between the four beings of the book of Revelation, who each have six wings, and any tribe from the Old Testament, for example, the tribe of Judah and the lion? The... The line of the tribe of Judah is a reference to Christ. Uh, so, I mean, you certainly see that in C.S. Lewis's in his Narnia tales in using a lion to represent the messianic figure. But the fathers of the church and the church today sees in those four figures uh, the Gospels. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is uh, the angel in the form uh, that has also the face of a man. Uh, Mark is the angel with the face of the ox. Uh, Luke is, no, I've got this backwards. Luke is the ox, I think. Don't look at me. Don't look at you. The Saint eagle, Thomas Aquinas the eagle was, is Saint John. St. Thomas Aquinas was the ox <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Well, he was the dumb ox according to Chesterton. <laughs> but anyway, the four gospel writers uh, or the four gospels themselves as being words of God as it were. Uh, are symbolized in that. And you see it in many paintings and artworks. When you go into the churches in Italy, in Rome, for example, and you look up, you generally see in the sanctuary area or thereabouts a picture of the apocalypse, meaning it's Christ enthroned with the Father and the Spirit at his side, Our Lady and, and John the Baptist, St. Joseph and the saints, and usually other holy people are depicted there. But you will very often see the four creatures of the book of Revelation and the and the and of the Old Testament as well, representing the gospel spread out to the four corners of the earth and uh, uh, bearing fruit in all of the souls and all of the individuals that are brought to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> for the record, the angel for St. Matthew, Matthew, 
the lion for St. Mark. Mark. The ox for St. Luke. And, and the, the eagle, eagle for, for John. St. John. Yeah. Yeah. And the city of Venice uses the lion, therefore. Well, there you go. Yeah. And you call yourself a theologian. Hi. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Wide open phone lines for you, and plenty of time for your calls at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Email from Chris: Could the Eastern Orthodox Church have a clergy member elected as pope? Uh, the Eastern Orthodox, no, but Eastern Catholic. Priests and men, for that matter, the only criteria for election is to be, be a baptized male, Catholic male. A baptized Catholic male. It's been a long time since anybody not in the College of Cardinals was elected, but the patriarchs of the Eastern Churches, and uh, I think uh, all of them now, are members of the of the of the College of Cardinals. So one of the pa- Eastern patriarchs could be elected pope, for example. Um, there's not the po- there's no necessary exclusion of others outside of the College of Cardinals, but it would be extremely, you know, unlikely, uh, after all, you're talking about a body which comes through different experiences, I mean, such as the Pope is holding this consistory in August, for example. They will meet other cardinals. They will be able to, you know, size them up as papabili for the next election, whatever it is. And so that's going to be done, and so it's in that context and among those individuals that you would expect to find the next pope. But among those individuals are the patriarchs of the East, uh, the Catholic East. Thea asks, is having Masses said for the dead helpful to them if they're in purgatory, and how does that work? Well, they're not able to merit that for themselves now, but in the communion of saints, we can merit for them and we can offer them for their, uh, for their need. The Church does this through indulgences, which means that it's not only us doing, but it's the Church herself uh, begging the application of these merits to the particular individual, as it does in Masses offered in suffrage for the dead. So when you have a Mass offered for a deceased family member or loved one or friend or whomever, then that's the church asking, uh, asking, and so God applies it according to His will, uh, but it should be uh, it should be understood as being fruitful, uh, and it definitely will not be fruitless. It's only fruitless, obviously, if the person is in heaven, and then God could perhaps apply that to another person, or if the person is in the other place, in which case, sayonara, there's nothing that can be done for them. No sincerely offered prayer will ever be wasted, will it? It will not. Um, Jerry says, we may not get to finish the answer to this question, we may have to take a little break here, but uh, Jerry says, please respond to the accusation that the Mass, being an unbloody sacrifice, is not effectual for sin since the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Well, there is shedding of blood because it's the representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. Or you could say it's the application of the merits of the redemption. Uh, And it's done in an unbloody fashion. But nonetheless, it's the merits of Christ on Calvary, which is... uh, uh, which is being distributed through that. And that's true of the other sacraments, which serve other purposes than the, the representation of the holy sacrifice and the, and the, offer, the communi- communion of the individual with Christ. The other sacraments also participate in the, in the infinite merits of Christ, uh, and therefore they draw their power from those. And uh, the Mass is simply 
that where those merits are starkly represented to us uh, through the twofold consecration of the bread and wine. And we immediately benefit from that in Holy Communion. Give us a call, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. All right, I spent the entire break consoling Colin, drying his tears with a cloth in Veronikian style. <laughs> uh, he's so upset that people are not calling the program today, so help boost Colin's self-esteem and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Um, Jay asks, why are there more books in the Catholic Bible? Well, um, we didn't write them, uh, that's for sure. Uh, But in uh, in the ancient Near East, there were several... They weren't canons of, uh, Jew- of Jewish practice, but they were simply the practices of the different centers of Judaism, such as Babylon and Palestine and Alexandria and Egypt. And so in Alexandria and Egypt, uh, going back a couple hundred years since the, uh, uh, the Greeks had taken over the Middle East, Alexander the Great, so you had the Ptolemies and the Seleucids dividing up that part of the world. And so in... Uh, in Egypt, you had large Jewish communities. They were Greek-speaking because of the Greek influence. Uh, they took the Bible, the, the scriptures that were available to us of the, the, the uh, Torah, the prophets, and the writings, and they translated them. And they took other books, or uh, others wrote books, especially uh, the, some of the wisdom literature, uh, which includes other, other parts of the done elsewhere as well. And they put those into Greek. So they had this body of literature, which then it began to be referred to as the Septuagint because the tradition was that 70 rabbis working together came up with this translation and in, in one very mystical approach to this, the same translation independently. Uh, but in any case, 70 rabbis came up with these translations of Hebrew and Chaldean and into Greek. And that this was available in in Egypt, in Alexandria, of course, before Christ's time even. Uh, but when the church was looking for uh, a way of preaching to the Gentiles, Greek was among the intellectual class and certainly widely used in commerce as well, the lingua franca of the day, not Latin. And so they took advantage of this translation, and they quoted from it, the Septuagint translation. And so the church herself uh, used that in the, in the liturgy. But it had to discern which books were canonical, and that discernment took a couple hundred years. Uh, but by the about the year 380, and even uh, somewhat before that, the church had a solid understanding of what constituted the canonical scriptures. And the first real mention of a canon we hear of from the Synod of Rome in a letter from the Pope to a bishop in France in which he says, and he was asked which books are accepted at Rome, and he writes back, these are the books, and they're the books that are in the Catholic Bible today. And Augustine used the same list in North Africa uh, down through the Middle Ages. Uh, Jerome used it to translate the scriptures around the year 400 and, and thereafter. 
uh, used in the Middle Ages, translated into Latin, eventually translated into the vernacular, uh, of course, uh, certainly beginning in the late, uh, late Middle Ages uh, with the modern languages developing. And then, of course, the Council of Trent, because the Reformers started throwing some of those books out, the Council of Trent affirmed dogmatically that this was the canon of sacred scripture. So the Church has not changed since 382 in what books it considers canonical. Others have changed by following their own lights rather than the development of the consensus of the early church during the years of persecution as to what were from God and what were the writings of man. All right, I feel guilty now, Colin. Well, how's that? I said you were crying, and the phone lines are now full. So, Well, I you feel... answered at least one question, and that is, did radio throw some switch and we weren't on the air? <laughs> I, I, I don't <laughs> believe that that's the case, but uh, <laughs> at any rate... Uh, I feel in the interest of full disclosure, Colin wasn't actually crying. So, but we still want you to stay on the air because we want you to, we want to hear your questions today. And first up is Jane in Kansas City, Kansas, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Jane, did you think Colin was actually crying? Uh, no, I wasn't real concerned about that. <laughs> Very good. What's your question today? <laughs> the second luminous mystery. It's the marriage at Cana, and I always think it should be the miracle at Cana. And yeah. I just wondered if Colin had any insight into what it is and, and what's the focus, really. Sure. I think marriage uh, feast at Cana is right on, and here's the reason. It was a miracle in the context of a marriage. In the same way, the Eucharist is a miracle in the context of a marriage, the marriage of Christ and his bride, the Church. We see that developed a little bit in the end of the book of Revelation, where it's talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb. But we also believe that the Eucharist is our participation, the anticipation, if you will, participation and anticipation of that wedding feast. So uh, I think in God's providential wisdom, uh, that has the way that event has come to be known as the marriage feast. It tells us all about the dignity of marriage as a sign of the love of Christ and his church, which St. Paul will emphasize as we see in the Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Uh, but it also tells us about the dignity of the marriage between Christ and his bride, us. And so uh, that's why it's a, an appropriate and even a tremendously deep uh, mystery to, to contemplate. Does that help, Jane? Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Joanne, a first-time caller in Cluchyville, Louisiana. She's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joanne, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. I apologize for the background noise. I'm sitting in my car in the middle of a horrendous <laughs> thunderstorm right now. Oh, my goodness. But my question is, uh, some Protestants seem to have a big debate over premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And the Catholic Church doesn't seem to say a whole lot about that. Can you tell me why? Well, it does. That's not our debate. Uh, but if you go into the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning at paragraph 668, you will see the Church's eschatology, the theology of the eschaton, or all that leads up to the eternity. 
And so the church decided that long ago, certainly by the time of Augustine, and uh, the church's understanding is we are in the age of the church, that the thousand years is a mystical number that represents that age, so there is no millennium. And in the Catechism, it warns us against all kinds of millenarianism, uh, including secular and especially secular millenarianism. So what is that? Well, you, you see it around us today in one form or another because instead of God bringing about the kingdom, we see man trying to engineer a kingdom, a kingdom of man, a kingdom in which all problems are solved by man. Uh, a kingdom in which man determines what human nature is, when man determines what marriage is, when man determines what social justice is. God has given us all, the, all of this in, in Revelation. Uh, he gives us the grace to live it with love and charity for our neighbor, expressing the truth when we need to, but always loving the sinner and all the other debates of our day is, is a kind of pointing to the millenarianism that exists in our world today in which when God is thrown out of society, man figures he is now God and he will engineer utopia, utopia on earth, this kingdom on earth. And so that doesn't involve the, the, the Protestant views of these matter, but it is that everybody, as, I, as I've liked to say, has a cosmology in which they know they have some understanding of where we came from. Uh, God is in it or he's not in it. It's scientific or it's maybe it's uh, Marxist or whatever. But we all have an understanding of where we come from or a view about it. We also have, all have an eschatology. And to think the secular world doesn't have one, it does. But it has man as its goal and its object. And the perfection of man by himself and through his own means is its goal and its object. Whereas Christ came to give us God's means to perfect ourselves and to bring about the kingdom. So the Protestant debate is on the side of that, but it's because they don't have the church's understanding that they, they get locked up into, well, what do these thousand years mean? In which case you get the different views that Christ returns before the, before the thousand years, or he returns at the end of it, or he returns in the middle, as some have uh, or have said. Uh, with, uh, there I'm talking rather about kiss the period of the Antichrist than anything else. But they get a very mixed-up view and understanding of, of what that millennium is. And I think that's disposed our world to accept other views, because if Christianity can't be clear on what the truth is in this, and is divided, not in the church, but Christians outside the church, then it's easy to throw up your hands and say, well, why am I looking to the churches to tell me how to direct history? I'm going to direct it myself. And that's where we end up with the secular, uh, the secular utopianism, the secular millenarianism, uh, which is so rampant today. Thanks, Joanne, and be careful out there in that weather. Uh, Michael's watching us on YouTube, Colin, and he says, how did the knowledge of the truth of the assumption come to us? I think it came, it came first of all, by the insight of the Church regarding Mary's role in salvation. Uh, that she was the mother of God. That's the principal doctrine there. Uh, it tells us everything we need to know, and from it all her prerogatives and everything we can say about her comes. And so on the basis of that, we would say that, well, she had to be fitting for Christ to be conceived of her. 
So she had to be a fitting mother. She couldn't be subject to the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the devil. Uh, She must have been full of grace, as the angel indeed told her she was. Hail, completed in grace, is essentially what the, the Greek meant. And so this was necessary not for her sake, but for sake of the incarnation. And then everything followed from that. If she didn't sin, if she was faithful to the graces God offer, offered to her, and if she lived that down, why would she then be subject to the penalty of corruption which came through the sin of Adam and Eve? And so as the fathers of the church and the church as a whole, obviously, came to understand the relationship of Mary with Christ and to speak of her as the new Eve, Christ being the new Adam, as St. Paul says. These two ideas develop along, side by side in the church, and the understanding of them as beginning a new human family, as it were, the re- redeemed human family, and of Mary as mother of the church, as, as Eve was mother of all the redeemed, as the book of Genesis tells us, or mother of all, the, uh, uh, of all humanity, as it tells us, that these two things go together. And so, not subject to corruption, she must have been assumed. We had other facts, and the historical facts, and that is that nobody claims the body of Our Lady. Uh, there, are, there are places in, in Jerusalem where tradition says she was assumed from, that having been placed in the tomb, that she, uh, the body was no longer there. Uh, other tradition, I think, even is that she did this in the presence of the apostles. But we don't have that exact historical matter, but we do have traditions that were uh, very early in the church. So the teaching was there. The fact that it was only in 1950 that a pope affirmed this as a dogma points to the character of dogmas. They usually come about because people, you know, they refuse to accept them. Uh, or they fight about, it, or they change, or they change the meaning of them. Almost all of the early doctrines of the Church regarding Christ came about because there was some controversy raised by some individuals, whether it was Arius or Nestorius or others, and on the basis of that, Church said, "No, this is the apostolic teaching." Likewise, in our own time, there have been, Mary has seemed to be opposed. And we have this even in the church today, where even many Catholics are not prepared to accept the Marian teachings of the church. The Immaculate Conception, her sinlessness, her perpetual virginity, their assumption and these things, all of which are rooted in the early church, even though only the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption have made the matter, been made the matter of a dogma. The other teachings, her perpetual virginity, for example, uh, that's been a teaching of the church since the 600s. Um, it could be made a dogma. It's certainly true, even though it's not been made a dogma. And so there are many things which the Church holds in her hearts that when a particular age or individuals notably challenge it, she will then say, let's be clear here, this is a truth revealed by God and carried in the heart of the Church for all these years. And that's basically what Pius XII did. And when you read his, uh, uh, his, uh, his constitution proclaiming that, he gives all the historical matter which, well, that informed the Church throughout time from the Fathers up to our day uh, regarding this and the fact that nobody in the Church today, not the bishops, not the people, as a whole, as a moral whole, contested uh, this teaching. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Be sure to check out EWTN's Bookmark with Doug Keck this Saturday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. He'll be uh, talking about the book Romk and Wanda. It's a true story that reads like a best-selling thriller. Father Bill Watson explains how Romald Spasowski, a high-ranking communist official, secretly fed information on the party to Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II. Check it out, EWTN's Bookmark with Doug Keck, Saturday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Andrew in Midland, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Andrew, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Well, hey, Colin. Hey, Jack. How you guys doing? Oh, terrific. Thanks. Yeah. Good. Now that we've got callers. So, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, my grandfather passed away recently, Mm -hmm. and uh, he he got his last rites and all that stuff, and uh, he wanted to be cremated, and Mm -hmm. I've I've never liked the idea of cremation, but I know that it's allowed. Mm -hmm. So, we had him cremated, and then we found out later, well, we heard later, that you're supposed to have some sort of mask or ceremony before they are cremated. I'm just wondering what that's about and if we forgot to do something. Yeah, I think uh, that's sort of a procedural question. Uh, Would best asked of your pastor, because both forms, I believe, exist, uh, mass with the the body present or with the cremains. Uh, So I think uh, there's certainly a funeral mass can be held, it would probably best addressed before you had done anything had been done by the family with the body and then gotten that. But I would say take that to the pastor uh, and get his opinion as the best way to proceed. Uh, certainly nothing was da- done by cremating. There may have been a little, something out of order there. I'm not sure how this is done practically since being a layman, I'm not not involved in that and uh uh, never, no family member, at least no funeral that I've been to, has involved uh, cremated remains. Thanks so much, Andrew. We appreciate the phone call. Next stop is Boise, Idaho. Alyssa is a first-time caller listening on Salt and Light Radio. Alyssa, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Mr. Donovan. Hey, Alyssa. What's your question today? I have two questions. I want to know where two passages in the Bible are found. One is where St. Paul says that in Christ there is no difference between men and women. I want to know where that is found in the Bible, and I also want to know where I can find in the Bible that women keep their mouth shut in church. (laughs) Well, you're asking the difficult ones. Um, Well, it's certainly true that Christ says, or that Paul says in Christ there are there are no male or female Jew or Gentile and there he's talking about by baptism we are all made sons and daughters of of God and so that that unity that's that in lack of a difference refers with our relationship to the father we are all capable of holiness we're all capable of of being uh, um, the holiest individual is a woman, Mary. So obviously, no women are not disadvantaged at that. In fact, you know, many philosophers would say that women are the more spiritual of the sexes, and that that they actually, as a general matter, are the more religious of the sexes. My experience certainly confirms that. So, in the order of grace, 
There is no distinction, and, and that is what the baptismal reference is in St. Paul, which is in Galatians uh, 3.28. Uh, and the other one was, what was the other half of that question? In First Tim, First Timothy 2, verse 12, uh, where basically it says, I permit women to teach and to have authority over men, you know, that yeah. I suffer not a woman to teach, not to usurp authority over man, but to be in silence in, in the church, basically. Right. And I think probably there there's a combination of two things. Uh, one is, obviously, with regard to the clergy, no lay person should preach in the church in the context of the homily. The church has been very adamant about that. Uh, the, the bishop can give the faculty to a layman, say, for instance, giving participating in a mission and giving a talk outside of the Mass uh, to, to use the, the church, in other words, the building. Uh, but in that sense, you know, male and female are excluded from liturgical preaching within the Mass evenly. Uh, the, other, the other case is probably in a mostly customary, um, and that is that, as a general matter, women were not you know, frowned upon from taking that kind of a public place, whether it's in the synagogue, uh, certainly not in the, in, the, in the secular sphere. There were no women in the Sanhedrin. There were no women in the Roman Senate. There were no women in the Athenium, I think, in the, the councils of the philosophers. Uh, so the place of women of the time, that customary place, is certainly also referenced there as well. The church can distinguish between the two, and she does. So a lot of the things which cultural customs have prevented women from doing, even in the church, the church has made those distinctions even in our day, and said that there is no theological reason why they can't, for instance, be a reader in a parish or distribute Holy Communion or do certain kinds of ministries to be a chancellor in a diocese, to be a canon lawyer, and go on down the list of things which are not obstructed by being male or female. Uh, the sole thing that will never change, of course, is the priesthood and the episcopacy, which are reserved to men, and uh, the Pope uh, John Paul II and Paul VI before him declared that. So the Church is able to distinguish between the customary elements of a, something like that uh, and then the theological elements of it uh, in a way that in, the, in Paul's day they would simply have taken it completely at face value, and he probably intended it that way for that audience, uh, but uh, we can apply it uh, according to our time. Uh, next up is Beth in the great state of North Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Beth, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, well, we're excited, too, because we have calls. Go ahead. Um, my question is, what constitutes taking the name of the Lord in vain? Because I have heard clergy, mm -hmm. um, and before I converted, I've heard, like, regular old pastors and churches say it like an exclamation, like, oh, my G-O-D. And I'm... Yeah. I don't understand how a priest or a clergyman would not know, or mm -hmm. is that okay? I guess that's my question. I would say that's as an exclamation, uh, it's a it's a very small slight. It's not the best usage of English. I think, you know, a lot of things uh, which people take to be cursing and swearing, such as use of. Uh, the normal profanities as to those that have a certain color of the divine to them. 
are are not in themselves uh, sinful, but yet we generally know that they're uh, they're not good use of the language, and they're not good use and uh, used well when used in front of other people. Uh, to say, "Oh my God," is a very slight thing. The use of there that is absolutely prohibited as a mortal sin, as a grave sin, is to call God to witness to something that one says that is not true. That's the offense of the second commandment, that we would call God to witness to the truth of something. Now, that can be in a solemn venue as a court of law and taking an oath or some you know, you you're, you take oaths for certain offices in the church, in government, and in other situations. Uh, that would be a case of calling God to witness if you put your hand on the Bible and swear. Uh, another case would even be in conversation as you're trying to make a point and you say, well, as God is my witness. Well, having said that, what comes out of your mouth next must should be true, or you have called God to witness to a lie. So that's the primary intention there. The other things are usually not uh, done out of any serious motive and certainly not to offend God, but not the best use of our faculty of speech. Does that help, Beth? Sure, yeah. Thank thank you. All right, you're very welcome. Uh, We have an email from Raymond. He said, is there anything in tradition or Scripture that points to man as God's closest and favorite creature to the extent that there may be other life forms in existence superior to us in every way except our closeness to God's heart. Well, we know there are other life forms uh, in, in existence that are superior to us in many respects, and those are the angels. We don't know if there are human beings, and let me define a human being. Uh, a human being is, in the definition of philosophy, a rational animal that God might have, ra- there might be rational animals elsewhere in the universe, we cannot know. know. Uh, it's never been demonstrated that there is. Uh, but they would have, I would think, no greater uh, uh, abilities in those respects that we would. The angels certainly do, uh, and that's a different matter altogether. And it's interesting that uh, Aquinas himself sort of leads room for this possibility of other creatures in that he says that in asked the question whether Christ could only unite himself to one nature, his answer is an absolute no. Uh, so Christ could do that. We have no evidence that he has or will do. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. I hope you have a terrific weekend. We're back at it again on Monday. Until then, God bless.